Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that dances with gleeful abandon on the grave of Phyllis Schlafly. Welcome back, everyone. For today, we're leaving behind the story of the colonization of America and circling over to something a little more currently relevant. I apologize for my voice sounding the way that it does. I am currently getting over a one hell of a cold, uh, which has had its grips in May for over a week now, and has caused me to lose a little bit of my voice, as you probably know if you follow me on TikTok. It's not exactly ideal to start recording a new podcast when you're this close to losing your voice, but we're going to make this work. I'm going to be experimenting with different approaches to how I do this show because, honestly, it's been a really long time since I've done a podcast. And the last one that I did, I actually worked as part of a duo, which has a very different vibe than working on a show that's very much a solo effort. Uh, The less said about that show, the better. It came from the very dark days when I was still working in conservative politics. Look, we all made foolish decisions in our early 20s. And for what it's worth, I got the hell out of all of that before Trump was ever made the GOP candidate. I definitely was never part of the Trump GOP. Still, for all of the slightly cringe parts of that show's existence, I still had a lot of fun working with my co-host Erica. We even had fun that one time at CPAC when the pro-life group told us, unprompted, that they didn't think we were mentally deficient, despite both Erica and I being gay, which was appreciated, I guess. I've grown enough over the years to realize that 2015 gay Republican Meredith was little more than a stack of delusions in a trench coat, but at least I can very much tell you I was never a pro-life type of Republican for all of my flaws. I was one of those delusional Republicans who actually believed that conservatives were for small government, and because of that, I viewed pro-life legislation as ultimately anti-conservative. If we believe in small government, I argued, how can we push for legislation that inserts itself into the medical decisions of an individual? If conservatives actually were the party of small government, I'm sure that argument might have worked. Unfortunately, as I would come to find out, that was just one of the delusions stacked under the trench coat. It would soon become vastly apparent to me that while I was a stack of delusions in a trench coat, the Republican Party was by and large a large stack of red flags with a white circle and a little black symbol in the middle in a trench coat. If you know what I mean. I'll let this one line from one of my favorite movies of all time explain it in case you don't know what I mean. I believe he's making a connection between you and Adolf Hitler. Anyway, long story short, Donald Trump won the primary. I spent months encouraging people to vote for Hillary. Trump still won, and I went back to school to finish my history degree, which brings us to where I am now. Unfortunately, while in office, the great orange dope got to put in not one, not two, but three Supreme Court justices, which meant that even after he was catapulted out of office in 2020, the damage was done. And here we are three years later, dealing with the ongoing fallout. Which brings us to the topic of today's episode. I didn't just bring up my history as a pro-choice advocate, or that run-in with the pro-life group at CPAC for fun, though I always have fun with that we-don't-think-you're-mentally-deficient story because it was so out-of-pocket and utterly unsolicited. We'd never even talked to this group, and they just came up to us and told us, don't worry, we don't think you're mentally deficient. It's like a guy telling you he's a nice guy. If you were, you wouldn't have to say it. But the real reason I bring all of this up is that today we're going to be talking about abortion, more specifically the history of abortion. 
It's hard to believe that it's only been a little over a year since the draft opinion of Dobbs versus Jackson was leaked to the public. May 2nd, 2022, the draft of the majority opinion written by Justice Alito ended up in public hands by unknown means. Now, I could go on at length about the horrifying damage this will do and has already done to the health of women in this country and the very concept of the right to privacy upon which so many other Supreme Court cases have been based. But instead, today we are going to focus on one of the most absurd ideas in the entire absurd opinion of authored by Alito. Within this opinion, Alito makes the argument that a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the United States, and not implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Now, this isn't the only reason that the draft opinion concludes that Roe v. Wade was an unsound opinion in the first place, but I'll probably have an entirely different episode dedicated to the nightmare that is this Supreme Court's views on the 14th Amendment. Instead, this episode is going to focus on the deeply historically illiterate idea that Alito has in this argument that abortion is not deeply rooted in our culture and tradition. I'm pretty sure that the moment this decision was leaked, most historians who are even slightly involved with American social and cultural history felt like this. I felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out. Not deeply rooted my ass, I said, out loud, in a bar, where I was waiting to meet a friend. I got some weird looks. I wasn't alone, though. Every other historian I knew was having that exact same reaction. So today, instead of focusing on what the lack of abortion access means for American women, let's talk about the deeply rooted history of abortion, specifically abortion in the Western world in America. Because if I talk about it generally, we're going to end up with a really long-winded discussion of Assyrian law and Sanskrit texts. And while those are interesting, ultimately they aren't part of our quote-unquote Western culture and traditions, which is what Alito is so obsessed with. To be honest, though, I still debated where I should start with the history of abortion, even under the constraints of American culture and tradition that Alito is obsessed with. I could start with abortion in the Greco-Roman world, but ultimately, I didn't want to play into that weird white supremacist historical illiteracy that leads them to think that the Greco-Roman world is the basis of Western civilization and dominated by the achievements of white men. So instead, let's start with abortion in Native American cultures, because that's far more important to the deeply rooted traditions of this continent. Reproductive health care is a touchy issue for Native Americans historically. The history of sterilizations and abductions by white Americans is objectively horrifying and only made somehow more horrifying by the tone-deaf way that some, mostly white women, tried to slyly suggest that Native Americans set up abortion clinics on tribal land in order to circumvent bans after the Dobbs v. Jackson verdict. Tacky. Let's never do that again, ladies. It's a bad look all around to think that Native Americans are here to save us after all the shit we did to them. There are 574 Native American tribes currently recognized by the federal government. That's nowhere near the amount that existed before we stuck our European noses in, but obviously it's too many for me to detail all their traditions about reproductive health, even if I knew all of their traditions, which I don't. So I'll refrain from trying to claim expertise on all Native American tribal reproductive traditions, but there are certainly tribes that practiced birth control and used abortifacients to end pregnancies. Abaki Beck, a Blackfeet and Red River Metis public health researcher, shares that plants had a role in the reproductive care of women, including pregnancy and abortion in the Blackfeet tribe. The Shoshone people, among others, used herbs like stone seed and dog bane for contraceptive purposes. The Shoshone, by the way, are the tribe that gave America Sacagawea. Hard to get more rooted in tradition than that. Many tribes viewed reproductive health and bodily autonomy to be an important component in their religious practices. As a result, the idea of women being banned from autonomous health decisions for their own bodies would be the opposite of some of the most extremely deeply rooted American traditions. By the way, have I made the pointed use of quoting Alito's stupid phrase too many times already? 
Probably. Tough. Suck it up. It won't be the last time. I have nothing if not thorough when mocking someone. But I suppose the culture of the colonized doesn't really matter much to Alito, since it's not the basis of our legal precedent here in America. So what did European colonists in America think about abortion? Healers, midwives, and doctors have been using various herbal medicines and physical methods to perform abortions for centuries. Plants like juniper and red cedar were used by colonial European and Native women alike to end unwanted pregnancy. The methods available to women were recognized as both safe and effective at the time, but the legality of the issue did differ depending upon which country controlled the colony a woman lived in. For instance, if you were a woman of the 17th or 18th century living in a French or Spanish colony, they would have been operated under the law of their home nation, where abortion was illegal. However, British colonies had no such law against abortion if it was done before quickening, or the first movement of a fetus in utero. This is a really vague terminology, but it's usually around 16 to 20 weeks. This had been English law since the 13th century, as it fell in line with the current church teachings that stated that the soul did not enter the body until quickening. The English law is particularly important in this context because English common law formed the basis for the law of the United States. That's about as deeply rooted as it gets. Once the American Revolution happened, America made no real major changes to these laws on a federal level. From 1776 to the mid-1800s, abortion remained a legal practice in most states. It wasn't until 1821 that any state in America would pass a law codifying any kind of ban on abortion. And at that time, Connecticut only reaffirmed the English law that abortion was legal up until that very ambiguous line of quickening once again. So really, it's the lack of legal precedent on this issue that speaks more to the deeply rooted traditions of America than any law on the books could. Pregnancy and everything else related to it was a woman's domain, not men's, and as something that revolved around the lives and skills of women, it's unlikely that most of the Constitutional Convention had any clue about these issues in the first place, let alone would have thought about legislating them. Not that men in office today seem to know any more about anything related to women's reproduction than they did in 1789, but I digress. So why would any of these men even consider the need to legislate an issue that was purely the domain of women, women who barely existed as legal persons in the eye of legal precedent at the time? Under common law, women were considered covered persons under the English concept of coverture, which meant that their legal and political roles were defined within the household by either the voice of their husband or the voice of their father which is a whole other topic I could do an entire episode on, and I probably will. But the important part is that it shows how little the law ever considered women at all, and women's reproduction would have been of even less importance to the law. That was the private sphere, governed by the home. The government was the public sphere. It's not as if abortion didn't happen, it just wasn't the purview of the court. Cases concerning abortion rarely came before the courts, and even then, the cases generally weren't concerned with the abortion as it related to the life of the fetus. Instead, they used the abortion as evidence of prior sin, meaning premarital sex or affairs. Of course, you might ask, how do I even know abortions were happening? You might say, well, Professor, maybe the rarity of abortions coming before a judge just means that women weren't having abortions back then very much. And yeah, sure, that's a nice theory, but it simply doesn't hold up with the reality of the evidence from the period. Recipes for restoring menstruation for women were commonplace, some safer and more effective than others. Restoring menzies or menstruation was the common term for abortion in the 18th and 19th century. Restoration was needed when something had blocked or suppressed the normal flow of menstrual blood, usually a pregnancy. 
1748, future founding father Benjamin Franklin would publish an American version of a British textbook called The Instructor. This was a manual that taught everything from mathematics to letter writing to horseshoeing. Franklin had decided to adapt the British text for an American audience, which involved making some edits here and there, removing things that weren't useful to an American and adding things that he thought were. Some of this was just Americanizing the text, but one major change was adding John Tennant's Every Man His Own Doctor or The Poor Planter's Physician to the end of the text. Franklin advertised that his edition was the whole better adapted to these American colonies than any other book of the like kind. In the preface, he specifically mentions his swapping out of certain sections, insisting that in the British edition of this book, there were many things of little or no use in these parts of the world. In this edition, those things are omitted, and in their room, many other matters inserted more immediately useful to us Americans." John Tennant was a doctor in Virginia who had written his medical guide in 1734. The pamphlet contained a lot of guides for how to cure common ailments that rural people might suffer from in the Americas, everything from stomach ache to baby colic to epilepsy. I would not recommend trying any of his cures for anything, especially not epilepsy, but the important thing is that these were common cures that anyone would have been able to make and use for themselves in rural areas where there wasn't a doctor available. On page 40 of this pamphlet, he writes a guide for how to cure the suppression of the courses, where he says, Now I am upon female infirmities, to touch upon a common complaint among unmarried women, namely the suppression of the courses. This disparages their complexions and fills them besides with sundry disorders. For this misfortune, you must purge with Highland flag a week before you expect to be out of order, and repeat the same two days after. The next morning, drink a quarter of a pint of penny royal water, or decoction with twelve drops of spirits of heart's horn, and as much again at night when you go to bed. Continue this nine days running, and after resting three days, go on with it for nine more. Ride out every fair day, stir nimbly about your affairs, and breathe as much as possible in the open air. Tennant then follows this with instructions on how to avoid this complaint in the future, including that women must not long for pretty fellows or any other trash whatsoever. So in other words, don't put out if they won't put a ring on it, or you'll just have to do this whole mess over again. But not one word of the instructions given by Dr. Tennant seems judgmental or shaming. The suppression of courses is just a common complaint among unmarried women, and he's helping you solve it. And before you make the claim that perhaps this was just self-serving for Franklin, man-whore that he very much was, let us remember that Franklin counseled men to have their affairs with older women because there is no hazard of children which irregularly produced may be attended with much inconvenience. He wrote a whole pamphlet titled In Praise of Older Women. No, really, he did. That wasn't just a scene in Assassin's Creed 3. I swear to God, it's a real pamphlet he wrote. Concerning what? The benefits of taking an older woman as a lover. Really? This I'd like to hear. First and most obvious, they're wiser. And so this makes for far more stimulating conversation. Makes other things more stimulating as well, but more on that in a moment. That is literally the only cutscene I will never skip in this game. I laugh my ass off every single time. Google In Praise of Older Women by Benjamin Franklin after this episode and enjoy the read. Really, seriously go read it. It's wild. John Tennant and Benjamin Franklin weren't the only people publishing guides to help women with this problem, either. In William Mather's Young Man's Companion, which was written in 1699, a recipe for provoking a period is included. Unfortunately, this particular one is horribly ineffective, but what do you expect from a book called The Young Man's Companion? Most men today still think women pee out of the same hole the baby comes from. 
The most important thing about all of this is that these books were common, unremarkable, and not controversial to own in the slightest. The knowledge was available to anyone that could read and do math, which was also taught by the book in question. No one was burning copies of the instructor in bonfires or arguing at school board meetings that they needed to be banned. So I feel we've established my main point, which is that from a legal and cultural perspective, abortion is very much deeply rooted in our country. So where did this whole debate even come from? Two places, men and religion. Surprise, surprise. We'll start with men. They love going first anyway. In all ways. And as a brief aside, if you're getting sick of any of the, you know, anti-man jokes going on in this show, I do ask that you remember that the title of this show is Bitchy History. You knew what you signed up for. The first laws banning abortion in America were not put on the books until the 1860s. Laws which made it illegal even before quickening began to appear around this time. This was specifically pushed by a group of men who had organized the brand new American Medical Association and felt that female medical practitioners like midwives were a problem that they needed to get rid of. This group was led by a doctor named Horatio Storer. In 1860, governors of every single state in the United States received a letter from the recently established AMA written by Storer, in which he says, The evil to society of this crime, i.e. abortion, is evident from the fact that it, in its instances in this country are now to be counted by hundreds of thousands. By the moral law, the willful killing of a human being at any stage of its existence is murder. This is the person that introduces the idea to the American legal system that the child is alive from the moment of conception. Thanks a lot, Horatio. And before you say, but that's what religion says too, be patient. We'll get to religion in a second. Why did Storer care about banning abortion? Well, let's just say that Horatio and Tucker Carlson would have gotten along really well. I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's, that's what's happening, actually. Let's just... Yeah, Storer was basically peddling replacement theory a solid 84 years before Renaud Camus was even born. Amazing. See, the birth rate for Protestant white women had been declining over the course of the 19th century. White people are going to be replaced by immigrants from Europe and Asia, and then how are white people going to fulfill their God-given right to control everything? So abortion clearly needed to be banned, for the good of manifest destiny, you see. Midwives get slandered as uneducated, unsanitary, and immoral. The only right doctor to go to is a college-educated male doctor, because they certainly know more about the female body than a woman who has probably overseen the childbirth of every one of those college-educated men. That makes total sense. But regardless of how silly this all sounds, Storer's plan worked. A few years into the campaign, some states began passing laws outlawing or restricting abortion entirely. In 1860, Connecticut would change their law to get rid of that quickening rule they'd put in place in 1821 and make abortion a crime. This was punishable for both the abortionist and the woman by a fine and imprisonment. Over the next few decades, these laws would be passed in most states, helped along by a Union Civil War veteran named Anthony Comstock. Comstock, for anyone that cares, is included very high on my list of historical figures who I would travel back in time to kick in the groin repeatedly if I ever had access to a time machine. Personally, I think it's a noble cause, and I'm waiting for my chance. 
I won't go into too much detail here since Comstock is going to feature in another episode somewhere down the line, but he's very relevant here because not only was he against abortion, he was also the leader of the anti-birth control movement of the 19th century. In 1873, Comstock began lobbying Congress to pass anti-obscenity laws. There had been a rise in new forms of birth control, like diaphragms and rubber condoms. This lobbying led to the passage of the Comstock Law, which made it illegal to send sex toys, pornography, contraception, abortion drugs, or even information about contraception and abortion through the United States Postal Service. As a side note, it was a Comstock law that Griswold v. Connecticut came up against in 1965. That Supreme Court case, also based on the right to privacy in the 14th Amendment that Roe v. Wade was based on and Dobbs overturned, was what made it illegal to ban contraception on the state level. Just FYI. The 14th Amendment matters. Information about abortion was included in this ban, and so sending information about abortion became a federal offense, punishable by a $5,000 fine and up to 10 years in prison. And so, because of one very racist doctor, a campaign against abortion swept the nation. But maybe we should give Horatio the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he wasn't a racist, right? I mean, maybe he was just deeply religious and actually believed that the soul was in the body from the point of conception onward. Well, first, I don't think I need to tell you this, but I will anyway. Or rather, I'll let Anna Kasparian from the Young Turks tell you. I don't care about your goddamn religion. I'm so tired of having nonstop conversations about what the Bible says. But that being said, I'll indulge your curiosity here, because religion somehow became the cudgel behind the anti-abortion movement, and this is where the history of anti-choice politics gets really interesting, in my opinion. See, it's not actually true that Christianity just automatically believed the soul was in the fetus from conception. Most early moral debate on the acceptability of abortion revolved around religious interpretations of when the fetus gained a soul. The debate occurred over and over in Catholic and Protestant churches for centuries. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas believed that the intellectual soul was not given until birth, while the Southern Baptist Convention in 1999 resolved that the soul was there from conception. But here's the thing, that 1999 ruling was a pretty big change for the SBC, because back in 1971, that same convention passed a resolution calling to legalize abortion in many circumstances. This resolution said, We call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. This was a decision that the SBC reaffirmed in 1974, the year after the conclusion of the Roe v. Wade legal battle. When the Roe decision was handed down, W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas and sometime president of the Southern Baptist Convention, issued a statement praising the ruling. I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person, and it has always, therefore, seemed to me what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed." James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family, acknowledged in 1973 that the Bible was silent on the matter, and therefore it was plausible for an evangelical to believe that a developing embryo or fetus was not regarded as a full human being. The SBC reaffirmed their support of abortion again in 1976. So what changed between 1976 and 1999? I'll tell you what changed. Bob Jones University. In a 1983 case before the Supreme Court, the court determined that the IRS could deny tax-exempt status to any institution whose policies are contrary to established public policy, even if those policies are based on religious beliefs. What policy at Bob Jones University was contrary to established public policy? 
Why, they're race-based admission and association policies, of course. You see, Bob Jones University didn't admit black students until the 1970s, and then for a 30-year period after that, interracial dating by college students at that school was prohibited. Bob Jones Sr., the founder of the university, was a real character. It was his view that 20th century blacks should be grateful to whites for bringing their ancestors to this country as slaves. If that had not happened, Jones wrote in 1960, they might still be over there in the jungles of Africa, unconverted. Integrationists, according to Jones, were wrongfully trying to eradicate the natural boundaries that God himself had established between the races. When classes began at this university in 1927, admission of students was officially restricted to only members of the white race. Bob Jones Jr., the son of senior, continued the racist policies of his father. During his tenure, he even bestowed honorary degrees on people like George Wallace and Strom Thurmond, so we can see where his loyalties lay. Under his son, Bob Jones III, and really, Bob Jones is a bad enough name to give to one child, but to continue that on for multiple generations is just weird. Anyway, Bob Jones III, as the head of the university, was finally forced to admit black students, but they still restricted interracial dating, despite the fact that, you know, Loving v. Virginia had made interracial relationships legal in all 50 states four years prior to this. It was this practice in particular that got the IRS involved in 1976 and resulted in them revoking the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University retroactive to 1970. So what does racism have to do with abortion, you might ask? Have you even been paying attention? When have laws against abortion not been about race? Horatio Storer started that trend in 1860. Be real here. The IRS went after segregation academies as well, many of which were sponsored by churches like the one opened by Jerry Falwell in 1967. Paul Weyrich, a conservative political activist in the 1970s, realized that maybe racial segregation wasn't the vibe anymore, and using it to motivate the religious base politically wasn't going to work so well. It was out of style. No one cool was a segregationist anymore. What to do? What to do? We need a new topic to energize the evangelical voter and get them to the polls. Oh, we know. Abortion. It had been a Catholic issue before this, but with the right tweaks, it could be a Protestant evangelical talking point for the next election. Weyrich realized this during the midterm election of 1978, when Catholic anti-abortion activists managed to swing a low-turnout election by leafleting church parking lots with anti-abortion pamphlets the weekend before the election. So that was it. The life of the unborn. That's a respectable issue. That'll energize evangelicals and rally them to vote Republican. We have to protect the babies. So as it turns out, when we look at the history of this issue, only one of the two options of pro-choice and anti-abortion is deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the United States. And that's being pro-choice. It dates back to the Founding Fathers. In fact, before the Founding Fathers. Anti-abortion rhetoric, whether it's Horatio Storer in 1860 or the Republican Party in 1980, just boils down to being the desperate attempts of white men to hold on to political power in a changing society. And I suppose that is deeply rooted in the traditions of America, but I don't think it should be. So there it is, how America got to where it is today on the issue of abortion. It's both disappointing and predictable that it's all wrapped up in white men terrified of losing their power, both then and now. Let's all be a bit more like the Founding Fathers on this, and mind your own business. My lady parts are between me and my midwife. Thanks for showing up to listen to me bitch about history today. I hope you enjoy the first of many How We Got Here episodes that will be a regular part of bitchy history. 
For those of you looking for more information on what's going on today with abortion in America, as opposed to today's historical deep dive, I suggest subscribing to Jessica Valenti's Abortion Every Day Substack, which you can find at abortioneveryday.com. Her work is highly detailed and will keep you up to date with current events about reproductive health in America. You can also follow her on TikTok under the username at AntiKilljoy. Tell her I sent you. She is still not my mutual on TikTok, and that makes me very sad. You can also follow me on TikTok or join the Discord group for this podcast if you follow the Linktree link in the show's description. I'll see you back here on Monday, where we're going to pick up where we left off last Monday with the colonization of the New World.